Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. As beloved and influential as he is, even to today, he only wrote two books, A Week on the Concord and Mary Mac Rivers, a book that I admit I have not read, in 1849, and the second was printed in 1854, entitled Life in the Woods, better known simply as Walden. That book I have read several times. The author, of course, is Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau graduated from Harvard in 1837 with the ambition of becoming a poet, but discovered that poetry leads to personal starvation. So he thought about running for office, but becoming a politician, he declared, was a life, quote, too filthy. He turned to the ministry, but he found institutional religion to be a millstone tied around his free-thinking soul. So he became a teacher. He found that he was required to, quote, teach students everything except how to actually live. And found that dissatisfying. This is what Thoreau truly wanted. And that was to live. He found life within philosophy. Transcendentalism. What we now call ecology or environmental studies. But he remained stymied. Working in the family business. And giving a few lectures. And writing a few essays a year. And a friend observed this. And gave Thoreau this advice. Go out. And build yourself a hut. And there begin the grand process of devouring yourself alive. I see no other alternative. No other hope for you. So on the 4th of July, 1845, Henry David Thoreau moved to the Massachusetts woods. To Walden Pond. Where he would live for two years. In a cabin he built with his own hands. On 14 acres owned by his mentor and friend, another literary great, Ralph Waldo Emerson. A decade after the fact, in his book Walden, Thoreau was crystal clear on his intentions. He said this, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach And not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow. And then he turns his critique to the shared life we have as a community. A community that was far less complicated in his day than it is in our own. And remember that these words are soon to be 200 years old. Our life 
is frittered away by details. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen. Keep your accounts on a thumbnail. In the midst of this chopping sea of civilized life, such are the clouds and storms and quicksands and thousand and one items that if a man would not founder and sink to the bottom, he must simplify, simplify, simplify. Instead of three meals a day, why not one? Instead of a hundred dishes, why not five? And reduce other things in proportion. Our life is such an unwieldy and overgrown establishment. Cluttered and tripped up by its own traps. Ruined by luxury and heedless expense. And the only cure for it is simplicity of life and elevation of purpose. That sounds almost like Holy Scripture on my ears. And if you didn't know, all those years ago when... A simple faith began and we were banging around with names for uh, this table talk that was quickly about to get out of control. It was Thoreau as much as any biblical writer who was running laps inside my own head. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. Simplify, simplify. And for what reason? In order to live deliberately. In order to live deep. And to suck out all the marrow. Each year at this time, and sometimes after the calendar has carried us past Ash Wednesday into Lent, I launch into some sort of series of talks on these Sunday mornings. I'll keep that pattern and tradition in this winter of 2023 with this series entitled simply, Simplify, Simplify. This series isn't about cleaning out your garage or your closet or that drunk junk drawer of yours, though you should do that. It's about simplifying everything. It will be about untangling your life, decluttering your spirituality and your faith, traveling light and easy with your resources, your possessions, and your relationships. It will be about paring away everything that is unnecessary, about reducing the items on your to-do list, about playing small ball on a field that you can actually cover, about staying afloat in this chopping sea of civilized life, the clouds and storms and quicksands and thousand and one items. Simplify, simplify. This morning is a general introduction to the weeks that will follow, and for that introduction, I have chosen a favorite psalm of mine, Psalm 46. If you are a note taker, one of those folks who makes notations in your Bible when someone has spoken on a text, and if you have listened to me for any length of time, you will find and probably have a couple of notations where I have previously selected this psalm. It shows up regularly in the lectionary, and like I said, it is a favorite of mine right up there with Psalm 1, by the way. But it's not just a favorite. It's a bullseye mark of precision for all of us who would begin this Theronian, deeply spiritual process of simplification for the purpose of living a truly alive life. That's something Walt De Niro, my friend, now passed from the University of Georgia, one of my instructors used to say all the time. He would say, 
May you be alive for as long as you live. That's the reason for simplifying. To Psalm 46, this particular psalm is sometimes referred to as Luther's psalm. Martin Luther, the reformer. The opening verse inspired the words to his most famous hymn, a Lutheran standard put to the tune of a popular German drinking song of the time. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, whatever a bulwark is. But you can just see those stout little Germans with their steins singing in the bars. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. This psalm is also known as Shakespeare's psalm. I've shared this before, and I, I wasn't going to do it today, but I just can't resist. I can't stop. Fifty-four scholars were gathered by King James of England way back in 1611 to translate the Bible literally into the King's English. And we don't know who they all were because the notes and the minutes from their meetings were destroyed in a fire a few years later. But a doggedly persistent rumor has always been that none other than William Shakespeare was one of the contributors to the King James Bible. And that would make sense. The King James Bible is England's greatest book produced while England's greatest writer was flourishing. Here's an exercise for you. When you go home today, find the King James Bible if you have one or look it up online. Turn to Psalm 46. Start counting the words in the psalm. One, two, three, four. When you get to number 46, stop and the, the word beneath your finger will be shake. As in the mountains shake. Verse 3. Now go to the end of the psalm. Begin counting there, moving from the end back to the front. One, two, three, four. When you get to number 46, the word beneath your finger will be spear. Shakespeare turned 46 the year the King James Bible was produced. And he requested to work on Psalm 46. And so, Shakespeare. 46 words in, 46 words from the end. Oh, those blimey English with all their subliminal messages. Next Sunday I'll be talking about I am the walrus. Uh, we'll be playing Stairway to Heaven Backward in a number of Ozzy Osbourne songs, but I digress. What is not subliminal or cleverly disguised is the message of this psalm. It undercuts everything about how the world works and the typical path people take to find a little peace and happiness. Our thinking goes something like this. If I can fix what is wrong, if we can manage some of this chaos, if I can get things under control, or if I can impose my management plan on others or on their problems, then the peaceful and happy life will be mine. Yeah. You keep that up. Because it's a prescription for the opposite. When we clutch and hold and try to manage and control, we only end up unhappy and anxious. Check yourself on that and see if it is not the truth. If this psalm tells us anything at the very outset, it is that our surroundings and our world is chaos. This 
psalm has nothing to do with the end of the ages or the apocalypse. This psalm about nature and economies, tectonic plates, politics, pardon me, it's all just shot to hell. There's trouble in this world. And that's just how the world is. I'm going to say that again. There is trouble in this world. And that's just how the world is. Can you say amen? And there's trouble in your life sometimes. Your life can be just as stormy a sea and uncertain as anything that you see on cable news. Well, let's not go too far. You can't control it. You can't manage it. And there is so much of it you can't even modify. You have to find a different, a better way to live, a more successful way to find peace within the chaos in spite of the chaos. And that different way is this faithful resting in the presence of God. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. There's always bound to be trouble. The earth shakes and it crumbles, but God is not moved. All of nature groans and trembles, but God is not shaken. There is nothing but dread and fear and exposure and vulnerability, but God is a fortress unfazed by all the rumblings of the world and its petty kings and petty kingdoms. So the choice is put to us right away. God or chaos. Trust what the world has to offer or trust what God has to offer. We can see that clearly. I think maybe what escapes us sometimes is how do we access it? How do we get in on what God has to offer? Well, if the opening verse of Psalm 46 is completely familiar and quotable for Bible readers, then verse 10 even more so. Where God says, Be still and know that I am God. The world is a cauldron of boiling, bubbling, upheaval, crashing and clanging and roaring, and God is not in any of that. God is not in the noise. God refuses, it would appear, to raise a voice over the clamor, though God could. God inhabits the silence. God is in the quiet. And if you are going to find God and the peace that God offers, the refuge from fear that God is, if you're going to hear God, it will be in the simplicity of quiet and stillness. The living illustration of this is the prophet Elijah. His story is found in 1 Kings 19. You can consult the full account when you get a chance. I will summarize it here. Elijah was a great prophet, a fierce but a holy man who took on God's enemies in ancient Israel. And this got the monarchy of the day after him. Elijah uncharacteristically ran from the battle. But that can happen even to the bravest of us. He fled into the Sinai desert for his life. 
to hide. He was afraid. He was overcome by the noise and the trouble that surrounded him. And once there, so despondent was he that he wished only to die. But instead, thankfully, he finds a cave in which to rest, to recuperate, and to hear from God. And here is what happens from the King James Version of the Bible. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in that wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, be translated lightning now, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out. It was that gentle whisper that brought the voice of God. Not a cyclone, not an earthquake, not the thunder and the lightning. Translated right from the Hebrew, this word for still or stillness could be rendered into the English, let it be. There's another good English composition, by the way. Relax. Be quiet. The most literal translation of the word is shh. Just like that. I said just a few weeks ago in a talk about how when we pick up a baby, and I've been watching mom carry this one right here, and she's doing exactly a living illustration. When you pick up a fussy baby, what do we say to that baby? We all say the same thing. Shh. Be still. Be quiet. You, you don't comfort a crying baby, or a crying adult for that matter, with more noise. With more activity. By cranking up the decibels. You comfort someone with stillness. So that when the weeping and the wailing settles the listening and the resting and the healing can begin. Thoreau called it clarity. What a beautiful word. An even more beautiful experience. A synonym, I think, for the voice of God. Clarity. His mentor, Emerson, and maybe Thoreau learned it from Emerson, used to ask his friends this question when he met them for dinner or for a glass of wine at the pub because his wine bibbing was legendary. He would say to his friends and ask his friends this question. What has become clear to you since we last met? Nothing becomes clear without quiet, without simplicity. So to Thoreau, ending where I began from his journal's And from that universal classic, Walden, he says this. Sometimes, on a summer morning, I sit in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sing or flit noiseless through the house, Until by the sun falling in at my west window, I am reminded of the lapse of time. I grow in those seasons 
like corn in the night. And this line, this is not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above. Earth rolls from under me and I float in the midst of an unknown and infinite sea or else heave and swell like a vast ocean of thought where all riddles are solved. All straight lines make their ends to meet and eternity and space jump playfully through the depths. Oh, to have such clarity, such calm. Oh, to be serene like the stillness of a lake when there is not a breath of wind. There the depths are revealed as all the world goes away. There I am restful, for silence is the communion of the soul. If you would practice a bit of quiet this week, if you would seek the presence and voice of God in the stillness, I believe that you will be able to answer this question next Sunday. What has become clear to you since we last met?